0: Do you not recognise who we are? We are the cause of your worry, of you and your family leaving in a hurry. Do you not recognise who we are? We are those who leave you sleepless, that screaming voice that never ceases. Do you not recognise who we are? We are warriors for a cause without any doubt, the cause of your destruction, you dirty coward. Men you could measure on every scale, not rats like you called us. Our story will tell that you didn't recognize who we are.
1: From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Kolk. Today's episode, Bride of the Sea.
0: My father was a student and my mum, she was just out of college, I think, at the time as well. They met in a restaurant in Dublin and my mum heard my dad talking from a distance about Islam. She's been very active in the papers talking about women's rights in Islam. She kind of like shouted over, oh yeah, you all just treat your women like rubbish and you're all just, you know, very degrading to your women, etc, etc. My dad just said to her, he said, listen, well, if you really want an answer, it's going to have to be from a Muslim woman. I tell you what, why don't you go and talk to them yourself, see what they say to you themselves, and you can make your own judgment from there. She went to the mosque, she met them. She, in her own words, was like, I went there to liberate all these poor women from their chains of oppression. But she said she sat down the first time and was taken aback by how generous, kind, open, and, and how warm they were towards her. So she went the second time, the third time. She just realised that she was totally wrong. She was in contact with my dad, got together and got married. And she became a Muslim herself. Then after, I'm born and raised in Dublin, normal guy like everybody else. I laugh, I cry, I listen to music. Growing up here, I was known as Sam. I am Hussam Najjar. I am half Libyan, half Irish. There was a bit of an identity crisis at, at some stage. It was nearly like having two personalities. Um, sometimes you would have to suppress one to enjoy the other. I always used to call it like Windows and Mac having to deal with my two cultures. By nature, I'm more sociable. I, I like to mix with the guys, the girls, have fun, go out, do all those kind of things. Yet I had been raised as a very good young Muslim boy. I rebelled, yeah, I rebelled so big what, time. What did,
1: so what did rebelling mean? Like,
0: rebelling is- meant leaving the house at 16 years of age. Living around the corner with the babysitter, it was like something out of a, a soap opera, so, you know. Like you know, you don't wait, you don't wait,
1: get you don't happened? get this you don't get this
0: incarnation street, like you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, I'm, 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 she's twenty odd. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I moved in with her, and that was, of course, the time. I wasn't even that far. It was only around the corner. Right. So it wasn't even a proper effort of an escape, like you know. The first time I ran away, they were like, oh, you know, the tears looking for me and stuff like that. The second time I chanced my look like again, and they were like, oh, well, if you're gone, you're gone. Like, you know. (laughs) My dad was very tough. He was one of those just, you know, real tough, uh, how can I say, like just old school kind of, uh, you know, like you watch like Robert De Niro on The Bronx Tale or something like that. He was kind and nice and stuff, but he was tough, you know, and he... He had his um, his moments. I just about finished my studies, got into working in a restaurant just to make ends meet. Like, it was all Libyan owned. It was Libyan owner of the building and Libyan guys who were running the business. And those guys who were running the business who was working with, they suddenly had to go. The owner didn't want to be left with his premises and all the equipment, etc., and all just closed down. So he offered it to me. I was only 19 years of age, and of course, 19 years of age, no parents to tell you what to do, and a girlfriend at that stage as well. I was making a lot of money and spending a lot of money. Drink, girls, going crazy, all that kind of stuff. Just living it up big time, you know? Too much money for my age, you know what I mean? Like, I was pulling in something like a thousand pound a week. That's good money now, never mind back then. At this stage, I was about 20, 21. Still after being fallen out with the parents, while I was in the restaurant, my cousin contacted me and said, come over for my brother's wedding in Libya. Now I hadn't been there for 10 years. I hadn't been since I was a child. I told my girlfriend at the time, I'm going for two weeks and I'll be back. People were actually struggling at that time, really badly struggling. And struggling because of him was the embargo at the time. No foreign goods whatsoever meant everything that was foreign was sky high. I remember one of my cousins, like, doing me, a, a supposedly really, like, being kind to me, and looking out for me. He's like, you know, poor you over in the heat, living this crap with us. Here's a box of cornflakes. I'll never forget it, but like it was something special like a box of cornflakes. And the cornflakes was like 20 dinar, when a wage for the month was 300 dinar. So it's nearly like you know, a day's work. I enjoyed the two weeks and I'm having fun and everything's good and stuff like that. And I said, OK, that's, now it's time to go back. Went to look for my passport. And my passport was gone. A month passes, two months passed, three months passed, searched everywhere, did everything. I said, listen, somebody's after taking this. My cousins were like, oh, what? We don't know it. What? Where? What? Oh, that kind of lark, like, you know. And so <laughs> my dad was putting word across to say to my cousins over in Livia, get rid of his passport because he's just running amok over here. <laughs> he was probably worried I was going to get that girl pregnant. Those two weeks ended up becoming two years. If the circuitry in a Mac motherboard goes a certain way to get to a certain folder, and Windows goes there a different way to the same folder, that's exactly what it's like between your Irish culture and your Libyan culture. For example, in Libya, like I was getting into the car, with a tank top on and shorts, was picking up some cousins, girls and stuff like that. My cousin had to sit me down and said to me, listen, you're not in Europe now. It's different, more conservative. You can't be sitting in a tank top looking like a surfer boy or something like that, with a bunch of girls at the back of the car.
1: What were you doing for work?
0: I worked in a diamond jewelers and I worked in a travel agency. A travel agency, like there was no travel industry in Libya, yet here we were. It was one of Gaddafi's right-hand men, one of his son-in-laws, who was very wealthy, had come out with this idea of a travel agency. But it was always like, you know, just to show. So we would be basically giving them the five-star treatment, showing them what Libya had to offer. So they'd come over, we'd have a fleet of black Beamers, put them up in the best of hotels. Some of them probably were shocked, didn't even realise they are going to get such treatment. Gaddafi had this group called the Lejna Tatir, the cleansing unit. And what they meant by cleansing was it was a financial police. He basically had his own book of law. And in that book of law, he'd come out with all these mad, I'm talking crazy, he could just wake up one morning, think of something that would become law. And one of them was called, for example, from where did you receive this? Meaning, you can't own two houses. Everybody can, can't they? You can inherit it, you can have your own home, then you inherit another home, etc. In Libya, no. In Libya, if you're part of the regime, yeah, you can. But if you're just about going about your own business, well, then the other parts of the regime will see you as a money target, will come up, enforce that law on you, and say to you, unless you live in the building, it, it gets taken off you. So you can imagine how many of the wealthy, original people of the land... That had all these properties, et cetera, through their families and stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, got their properties taken off them. Everything happens for a reason. That journey solidified my connection with the people, you know, because there's so many half Libyan, half Irish here. Hardly any of them went. Hardly any. Two years I spent over there, that's two years I was delighted to get my new passport. I got back here and picked up from where I'd left, got back with that girl. That girl became the mother of my only child. Becoming a parent is life-changing. Raised to the best of my ability, but myself and her mother weren't working out. She had converted to Islam. She knew that I was, you know, moderate like you know I was in no way fully practicing and but she got immersed in it I always said to her at the time I said you know I love you for who you are and it doesn't make a difference to me like and she had convinced me that this was what she wanted and um, she resented me over even though it wasn't me she resented me her parents obviously hated my guts then And when we split up, then it was a very messy kind of a split up. I went to the courts here probably about over 30 times, 35 times over a four year period. Without saying too much publicly, like if the mother, for example, doesn't want to have the father in the child's life and is willing to make up any story to back it, it's a very hard road for the father, you know, especially if it's not, there's no marriage. We're not given automatic guardianship rights. All he'd have to say is something like, I'm afraid that he might run away with the child and not come back. I went like a very long time without seeing Layla. I went on a warpath myself. Lost my partner who I'd been with for years. Lost my child now as well. I had no access to her. And so I went heavy on the drink and the craziness, wanting to hit the bottom of the barrel. You know, just wanting to be lifted out the gutter. Again, everything happens for a reason. Again, if I had Leila in my life at the time, maybe I wouldn't have went. Two things have changed me as a man, becoming a father and surviving a war. January 2011, the Arab Spring was just barely starting. The first spark of the Arab Spring was a man, Wazizi, who set himself alight a in, in,
1: Tunisia.
0: in Tunisia. Yeah, he was like the catalyst
1: of it all. His closest friends, anguished by Mohammed's actions, took to the streets and began a popular uprising that lasted for weeks before it toppled the 23-year-old rule of President Zain Abid Deen Bin Ben Ali.
0: Tunisia was already after now, and events in Egypt are starting to kick off. I've been out all day on the streets of the Egyptian capital, where there's tear gas
1: in the air, and people of all kinds are demanding the end of the regime. It's the time for the European Union to support Egypt, Egyptian, not the president, not the
0: regime. One of the lads said, you know, like, something like that's going to happen here. And one of the other lads said, that'll never happen here. He'll crush anything. And he's right, like, we all went, yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. Because we knew Gaddafi, like. That's when the revolution kicked off in Libya. Well, the wave of discontent sweeping across the Middle East is now surfacing in Libya, where- First of all, in Benghazi in the East, and then in other cities. We were glued to the screens here. I lived in Portobello and down below me, there was an internet shop owned by a Libyan guy. The rows of the machines were starting to be full of Libyans and we'd all have the the, the earphones on. And we'd be like, did you see this? I'm going to send it to you. Did you see that? I'm sending it to you. And the amount of videos coming out, like, it was like as if you were there. First of all was the, the guy with the placard in the middle of the square. They only have him on a camera phone, like, and he's on his own, like, standing, going, we want the end of the regime. That was... never. You couldn't even... Even crazy people were not allowed to do that. Like, even crazy people I was in that would have, like, you know, a mental disorder that might go out and go, oh, screw Gaddafi or something like that, he'd be gone. You wouldn't see him again, like... east had liberated itself completely from the regime. Tripoli was still under the thumb of Gaddafi and so were so many other cities in the west. My brother-in-law, his name is Mehdi Harati, he was married to my sister. So my brother-in-law made his way to Sudan and from Sudan made the journey up through the desert to the east of Libya. And his idea was to form a brigade from the sons of Tripoli. Because eventually... The goal is Tripoli. And what better way to enter Tripoli than with its own sons? You formed the brigade, called the Tripoli Brigade. Now I'm from Tripoli. I'm half Dublin, half Tripoli, capital city boy. I was sitting in that internet cafe, just after watching the video clip of a woman being raped by mercenaries, foreign voices, foreign accents. Her screams just resonated in my ears. It was as if she was a family member. That's when I started realising that he's going to do anything to hold on to power. So I felt if there's any way that I can help or if there's anything that I can do, then I'm going to do it. Like, you know, I have to do it. I remember as my mother saying to me, you know, she's saying, you know, son, now you're going to realise what you're made out of as a man. And she was so right, like... Did you tell your dad as well yeah like it's gas he's like see son that was all those beatings I gave you as a kid toughened you up and made you a strong man you see <laughs> 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 get some kind of a you know the for him to try and get the the, the blessing for it or you know it is it's, it's my good doing you see that's what, my raising you up tough that's what made you into a strong man that I was you know gas like old school parent or dad you know but um yeah he was he was you know, he's proud, et cetera, you know. Four months into the revolution at this stage, and Tunisia had calmed down now again. So I went over, that was gas in, in itself, like when we arrived in the, in the airport, and you have the Sunway travel advisor. You know, would you like to go on a quad bike adventure or this or that? I said, if only you knew where I'm going now, right now. I don't think any quad bike adventure is going to come close. We drove through Tunisia and crossed across a small countryside border called Wazen. Even driving through the, the landscape, we had to drive through places like Tatooine, you know, from the movie Star Wars. When we arrived at the border, there was a bunch of shells and spent missiles. It was in revolutionary control when we were, of course, when we were going through, but you could see the scars of the battles where the Gaddafi loyalists had tried numerous times to to retake it. We arrived at this, like, an old secondary school. We had taken that as a base. Went in and got myself one of the rooms and eight, ten guys per room, and each room had such a mixture of people. Usually you hang around with people, they're either a bunch of rich people that hang around with each other, a bunch of poor people that hang around with each other, religious, non-religious, but this was like one, it was like, you know, you could nearly pick one from every background and you could put, and put them in the room and see them getting on and chatting and having a laugh. The first morning, we got up for the da- prayer, which is the dawn prayer. Somebody was walking down the corridor, banging a pot or something. It was time for the dawn prayer. So people have to get up out of their sleep. Like, and... Now, I wasn't really practising beforehand. But when we were there, obviously, there were people who were praying all the time, etc. And so I felt anyway guilty. So I became part of it straight away. And after the prayer, I was sitting down up against one of the walls and I could see a guy, everyone had gotten up out of their places after the prayer, like except there was one guy and he was sitting kneeling down in the same spot and he was bawling his eyes out, crying. And I was looking at him for a while. I leaned up against one of the walls, sat down and leaned up against one of the walls and was looking across at him. And one of the guys who had come travelled with me, who became my friend, like he came, sat down beside me, and said, Come here, I said, well, what's, Why is that guy crying? And he said to me... Um, police from Tripoli, and a bunch of loyalists raided his house last night looking for him. And um, they've scared his mother up so bad that she died. I, I remember going over to him and I gave him a hug, and I, I because a, a, a queue had formed of people who were going over to him, you know, giving him a hug and stuff. And I said to him, I said to him, your mother's like my mother, and I'm so sorry to, to hear that. This was the first night I knew from then that every, All these guys were subsequently going to be like my brothers, like their families were going to be like my families. And what happened, their destiny was the same as mine. I remember coming in on one of the days, there was a beautiful sniper rifle that was standing up against the wall. I ran straight over to it and I was like, you know, looking at it and, wow, this is really cool. Even before the war I always had this thing for the sniper role within a war. Welcome to pizza. Even as a kid in Quasar here, it's like a laser game. You it's true. It's true. I there'd be guys run around shooting and stuff like that, but I'd be the guy that'd jump into a corner up hidden somewhere. And while the unsuspecting guys would run by I'd be popping huge head count by the end, you know. Thank you, sir. Plus, there was the fact that I was so cautious about collateral damage, I was so cautious about innocent death and how I would ever feel if I did kill anyone innocent by chance. I always felt that that was another way for me to eliminate that. Being a sniper is so more personal. You know, you can really you can see the definition of a person's face when you shoot at them, never mind, you know, just spraying a bullet from afar. So I said to him, I said, listen, I want that gun. Like, I'll train hard for it. I'll do what needs to be done. There was all this other stuff that was going on. We were meeting up with covert operatives, Western operatives from America, from France. It's not every day that you meet these, you know, Navy SEALs, et cetera, and they're, you know, wanting to hear what you have to say. And, you're to, you know, trying to give them as much information as possible to help what you're doing. There's certain times as well where I would meet with them and give them the locations of enemy targets, and you'd hear the next day that they have been hit. These were all things that you're saying to yourself, I'm being a part of this, like, you know, I'm just a normal person, but, like, here I am, guiding airstrikes and all kinds of stuff. Then, of course, the battles began. The whole day they just... We're spraying heavy artillery, mortar rounds, um, missiles. A few of our guys were getting hit. Mortars were landing beside them. One of the guys got decapitated from a mortar round. It's twelve o'clock in the day at this stage. You know, and the sun was beating down on us like really heavy. Like I'd drive up to guys and it'd be white froth in their mouths. I was coming and going from every part of the of the battlefield i had a bunch of guys in my jeep when we first arrived to the battlefield and i would let them out they started to creep their way up to the very very front like past the heavy guns past everything like reconnaissance and um while while i was doing what i was doing around the battlefield i I drove up to Mehdi one of the times and Mehdi said to me he said don't advance any more don't go too far, because I've got news that the tanks are going to pull out any minute, like, they've, they've ran out of ammunition. And I immediately thought of my guys, and I said, oh my God, look, what about my guys? He said to me, where are they? And I pointed over at a, a small outhouse, a good mile away at least. That outhouse was the only building between the barracks and us, where we were. And I said, they're probably there at this stage. I have to go over to them, like, I have to get them. And he looked at me as in to say, you're crazy, like, and I said, well, I had no other choice. Don't try and stop me, like, this is something that I have to do, it's my men, and he, he said to me, OK, go ahead. So I, one of the guys jumped in with me, and we drove around the battlefield, and every time I came up out of a dip up onto the top of a hill, bullets whizzing over my head, then I'd go back down again, the safety of the lay of the land, then I'd be up again, because no choice, you'd go up again, and bullets would be whizzing by. These bullets are like the size of a bottle of coke or something like that. They're designed to hit airplanes, kilometers in the air. I started zigzagging from left to right with the Jeep as I was going like through the the sand. We got to the building, did a hand kind of like locked right up against the wall. I could see my guys at that building like, and they were like, oh, are you crazy? What are you doing coming out here in, in the Jeep? I explained the situation, I said, we have to go. All hell broke loose on the building then. Bullets were hitting the walls. They were starting to make cracks. And some bullets were actually making it in. And when we were talking about what we should do next, I was saying, come on, we have to get out of here. A bullet came across and hit the, the, the sand from the side. So, so basically what that meant was it wasn't coming from in front of us anymore. They are trying to, to flank us. We just looked at each other and we knew jumped into the jeep, about nine or ten of us like um, zoomed my way back. When I got back to the rest of the group, our group wasn't able to really retreat now either because they knew where we were now at this stage and we were in cover with the lay of the land, but as soon as a big convoy starts to leave the lay of the land, we would have been like sitting ducks. Um, We had no backup that was willing to help. Basically, we ran out of ammunition in the tanks, so we were basically on our own. We couldn't move. Something amazing happened. A dust storm came out of nowhere. You can barely open your eyes. You can barely, you know, sand in your mouth, in your, in your eyes. So the enemy wouldn't even, even have seen us retreat. And they would be too fearful to to leave their barracks as well. It was a miracle. The timing of it. We limped our way back to the brigade that night.
1: What, um... What what was it like to know that you could have bullets whizzing around you and you could actually still think. Because I, I would imagine that would be a, I mean, for me anyway, that would be a real question whether or not, like, I could actually just keep going. Your instinct must be just to, like, yeah, stay in the ditch and just not come out. <laughs>
0: well, one of the guys that was in our brigade was built like a tank. Like, you know, you could see... Really muscly, et cetera, you know, and the rag tied around his head, and he was wearing a tank top, and the muscles were pumping, he's holding this machine gun, and I, he's like in this pose, like ducked down, you know, and I'm driving by just to get the water. He, he shouts over, uh, Commander Sam, Commander Sam, what's it like up ahead? And I said, I'm saying to myself, laughing, you know, Rambo, the battle is two kilometers ahead, there's guys with, you know, in the middle of the heat of the fire, you know. And, I, and I, I knew I said to myself, bravery is nothing to do with your size, nothing to do with, i seen smallish guys with the hearts of lions, you know, and uh, vice versa. It really rang and struck a chord with me what my mother had said to me when she was wishing me luck when I left her. She said, now, son, you're going to find out what you're made out of as a man. And she was so right-like because I found out with myself personally, that when the bullets do whiz straight over your head, there's three options. You either retreat, or you stay where you are, or you brave those bullets and move forward. We are Barga. We're the flame that burns your heart, that thorn in your side, we will never surrender. You must deal with that fact. Do you not recognize who we are? We are Ruzhban. We'll only die with gun in hand and not far from a battle to gain more land. You will not rule again, not you or your clan. Do you not recognize who we are? We are Libyans who like in Tripoli can't express their feelings. Under your iron fist she takes the beatings. Do you not recognize who we are? We are the ones who rose against you. From Derna and Beda. we won't stop until we're free of you. Benghazi forges men, and I'd just like to see if you ever stop to see who we are. This war had been going on for six months at this stage, and we got the orders that we're gonna march into Tripoli. You have to understand, for us, like, We are the Tripoli Brigade. We screamed it in our chanting, you know, Tripoli, we're coming, Tripoli, be patient, we're there, you know, and it's the place that we know. I hadn't slept properly in about three days. But when we heard about that, it's like somebody injected something into me, like a whole new lease of life. So I was buzzing again. And at this stage, I had a group of men that followed my orders. I was ready for this. Crack of dawn, when we left, the anti-aircraft guns went in first. They were firing away. We were advancing at a slow pace. We got up to a point where the convoy got pinned down. There was a military barracks up ahead. And that military barracks was a famous one called the Camp 27. They had a big tank with four 32-mil barrels coming out of the front of it, fully automatic, so just basically whacking them out down the road. I drove up all the way to the very front. I'm looking through my scope and I could see movement. And out of the blue, two big explosions hit the front of the camp near the tank. Big explosions, not from anything that we had, like mortars or stuff like that. And I I knew straight away that it was NATO. And I looked through my scope again, and I could see loyalists shell-shocked. I was looking around me, none of the other revolutionaries had binoculars and stuff like that. And I knew that this was the time to pounce. So I'll never forget, I jumped into my jeep, myself... And he's a, an art. We jumped in and I drove out in front of all of them. Now inside there was all of these guns. They're reloading and they're getting prepped and the odd one would come out and take a shot but I just drove out in front of them all and headed straight for the barracks. Now I'm thinking in my mind if I drive out and head straight towards this barracks that few other vehicles would see this and join in. But I'm driving along. Nobody comes behind me. I'm in the middle of the overpass now and I'm looking back towards my men and I parked the jeep in the middle of the overpass and jumped out with a flag stood back facing our troops and put the flag in the air and started screaming at the top of my voice Charge! I'm seeing guys going pointing up at the flag cheering and then a convoy of vehicles start to make their way to the barracks. When I threw it into the back of the jeep, and we're making our way down to the end of the barracks, and no more that I turn the, the t- towards the very end, I'll never forget, you made the turn, and then the sea faced us. And it was the first time I'd seen the sea, and I gasped. I think we all gasped, and it was beautiful. Guys, guys, it's sea. C, we're nearly there, we're nearly at Tripoli. And no more did I finish my words, then a spray of bullets came straight across the front of the Jeep. My automatic reaction, obviously, is to lock the steering wheel, put the foot on the gas, and swerve away. Like While I'm doing that motion, I hear a, a slump in the back of the, the, the Jeep. And the guy beside me looks back, and he's like, "Oh no!" He said, "Arthurs oh, have to get in. Arthurs oh, have to get in it. quick, quick, oh, Arthur. No way!" And you know, I look behind me. He's there in the back seats with a shot in the head. He was there gurgling on his own blood, and all these guys that were all screaming and shouting the big victory that we've taken this barracks. And um, I'm trying to, I'm beeping the horn saying, get out of the way, move out of the way to try and get him out to the ambulance. And we got out to the ambulance and I tried to, we lifted his body and put him into the ambulance. But I knew he was gone, even though he was alive. I knew he was gone. I went back over to my jeep and I put my fist through a couple of the windows and I cried and I was just so upset you know, that five minutes ago we were hugging and headbutting and laughing and that he was, it was as quick as that and he was gone. It's as easy as that. One minute you're there, one minute you're gone. You couldn't be sad for every guy that died because you, you, you'd never survive mentally. We became to the point that we were, like, you know, happy for these guys that made the sacrifice. They were martyrs for a cause.
1: What was different about this time? Because I'm I'm sure you had comrades who had died up to this point as well. I did have
0: comrades just because he was close to me, like, and because it happened right beside me. And, you know, I, I don't know if I felt a little bit of guilt because I was driving. I don't know whether it was because I put us in that situation I lost all fear of you know, I was I, I accepted at that point. If I was to die, I accepted it. We were coming into the gates of Tripoli. I kinda of, probably kinda of lost it a little bit, like, you know, in a sense. Lost what? Just sense of calculating everything and taking everything into account and just went all out, like, you know, no fear. Got to the outskirts of Tripoli. A guy had said to me, Commander Sam, are we going to go for Martyrs Square or are we going to Bab Azizi? Martyrs Square is the main square of the city, like, it's the heart, you know. Abla Zia is Gaddafi's major compound, military compound in Tripoli. I felt this huge responsibility. Am I making the decision of where this convoy is going? This is history, like the capital of Libya is being liberated. All this emotion going through my mind. But I made the decision. I said, We go for the symbolic gesture, which is Martyr Square. As we're driving through Omar Mukhtar Street, the mouth of it opens onto Martyr Square. As I'm getting closer, my foot is getting heavier on the the gas pedal. My heart is beating along with the speed of the engine, like it's just as fast as the. And when we got into Martyrs Square, I drove straight out and into the mouth of the square. Mentally, I could hear all of these guns being cocked and loaded. The whole place started spraying towards that, towards the mouth of Omar Mukhtar Street. I jumped out and I took cover and looked back towards the rest of the convoy and was like screaming to them, you know, take cover, take cover. While that's happening, one of my guys shouts over to me, Sam. said, i have to capture a guy on top of one of the roofs where he was a sniper. He was captured with his sniper rifle. And I went with him to see this guy. I wanted to interrogate him. Got up to the top of the, to the roof overlooking Martha Square. And there he is. One of my guys has him on the chair. And he's, tell us where they are, tell us where they are, and all this kind of stuff. And he puts the AK right up to his head. And then he shoots a few shots right beside his head, like just to frighten him or whatever. I grabbed him and I took him up onto the very top of the roof. I, I started, you know, softening him up. You have to give him a few punches and you have to hit him, you know, a few times. Where are the rest of the snipers? Where are you situated? Where's the rest of the battalions? Where's the ammunition based? And i never forget, like, I'm hitting him and he'd fall back and he was out of breath. And I'd fall back and I was out of breath just from hitting him. And it had all hit me then, how how exhausted I was. At this point now, it's probably about 11 o'clock at night. We had been battling for so long, running for so long. I I sat back on, on, on the wall, on the roof, And I said to myself, if I could just get even an hour or two. While I'm just putting my head against the wall, right below me is the battle, right? But I'm hearing the gunshots and I'm hearing the screams and the shouting and all that kind of stuff. How can I sleep while my guys are down there fighting? So I I walked down and I was clear. My shoulder was rubbing along the side of the wall as I was going down. I prepared both of my guns, loaded them back up with all the ammunition, got them ready. And as I was walking out of that building, I actually came to terms with myself and said, Listen, you made it to Tripoli. This is enough. I'm happy even if I go now. You know? So I stepped out from the building and just about to go into Marta Square. And one of the guys ran over to me and goes, Commander Sam, Commander Sam, it's liberated, the square is liberated. And I'm looking up and around like in a, in, in a daze, it's liberated. So I stepped out and I walked into the middle of Martyr Square. I threw my SMG down onto the ground in front of me and I dropped to my knees, prostrated, like in prayer of thank you to God. And when I went to stand, I couldn't stand back up. That night, I went to a friend's place, slept. I was, I was a soldier up until that point. After that, then I became part of the security apparatus, protecting the capital, rounding up loyalists. Interrogating them, recovering weapons, recovering stolen goods or monies, etc. There's an area beside Babylazia called Buslim, and this area is all like high-rise towers, very run-down. All the high-rise towers had snipers in them, and they were just popping off revolutionaries unsuspectingly in you know? them. We had to enter Buslim and sort it out. I'm below these high rise towers and I'm seeing a bunch of our revolutionaries go through the front door of the building. This girl jumps from the second floor balcony. So I went, ran straight over to her, lifted her up. Her, her pelvis was, was sore and she was, she was young, she was very thin, very frail. I was able to lift her up easily and carry her back to, the, um, to one of the jeeps. I went to the hospital.
1: And did you guys talk at
0: all? Or? Not really, no. There wasn't much to. I could just see that she was more. She was in, she was in pain with her sides, so she was crying, and she was like, you know. I, I put her in the hospital and, ju- and just said to the guys, that, you know, she was, what, where I've gotten her from and all that kind of stuff. About two, three days later, they contacted me and said, She's okay now, and, you know, listen, you can't just bring people here and just leave them here in the hospital without us knowing who or what they are. So I drove back to the hospital. As I'm going into the corridor, I see the corridors full of journalists. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? What hit my mind straight away was, they're going in to interview her. Why? One of the guys in the, in the hospital said to out, Sam, she's a loyalist. So I straight away, I'm so worried that she's going to be on the, in this report. I'm worried about her saying something like they raped me or they did something like that to me. You know, just any kind of lies. So I, I let a roar out to the, to the journalists. I said, you're going to all have to leave this corridor right now. Nobody's getting a, an interview with the, with the girl. And one of them came up to me and said, um, on whose authority? And I said, on my authority. I'm head of security in the in the hospital right now. And I'm telling you, you all have to leave. Now move it. Got them out. As they're walking out, one of them looks at me with a, a smart kind of a smirk on her face and says, well, you're too late anyway. There's somebody in there already interviewing her. And I went over to the door and banged the door in. And it was like a blonde, like she, I think she was Swedish. Just sitting down with her, and I walked straight over to her and grabbed the, the the notepad out of her hand, ripped the page off and handed it back to her and said, you have to leave now. And she was so scared, like, it was, I was all in military gear and stuff and she she ran out, like... And so, there was one of the revolutionaries was inside in the room while the girl was in, like, for the report and I asked him, I said, what's going on? And he said to me... She's admitting to 16 kills. I looked over at her and uh, all of these faces run through my mind and I I said to her, why did you kill these people? And she said, oh, they had me in the window, loyalists. They were telling me to shoot anybody who came by, shoot or be shot. And by night they were raping me. And I said, why didn't you shoot away from them or not kill or whatever? And she was like, I was scared and I didn't know what to do. And I felt like killing her. But I looked away from her and I went over towards the window and I just gathered my emotions and I was thinking about everything. And I said to myself in my mind, ultimately, there is one person that's responsible for all of this, responsible for taking this young 19 year old girl from her family, training her to become a monster, keeping her in poverty so that she would be hungry and then luring her to do what she's doing now. And so ultimately the blame was on him and was on the regime, him and his, his henchmen. And I kind of like redirected all that hatred from her then to to him. She was like, you know, crying, I want to see my mama, I want to see my mama. I had to take her from, because the hospital had said she's okay to leave, like, so I had to take her. You know, I said, yeah, I'm gonna bring you to your mama. Driving up, she said, this is not my mama's house. I said, listen, you're not going to your mama. You're responsible for killing 16 men. This is where I have to bring you now.
1: I'm
0: seeing rows and rows of mercenaries being admitted into the prison and we brought her to this to the women's new women's wing and when we walked up to the cell and they pulled the door back and she was stepping in two girls that were sitting down in the corner stood up and went over to her and gave her a hug they knew each other by first name that's when it hit me that it wasn't that she was just kill or be killed, guys holding her and all that. She was part of a sniper unit. She was willingly a sniper in his battalions well before the revolution.
1: Do you feel like you could still see the humanity in your enemies? Or was that something you needed to push aside in order to do what you did?
0: Uh, To be honest with you, uh, every when when I used to stroll up and down the the prison cells, and I used to like interrogate a lot. I used to, you know, I had to do a, a lot of rounding up of mercenaries and and loyalists in the aftermath. You know, people journalists used to come up to me and say, Sam, are you okay? Like after the war, are you feeling okay? Is everything all right mentally? All that kind of stuff." I said, "Listen, I'm fine." I said, "Just as I've said to you now, like I'm fine." The only thing that was getting to me at that point was having to lay my hands on people who had... A man who had burnt seven people alive or who had raped a whole family or knowing that I was going out that morning to capture somebody who had uh, massacred uh, ten people. Uh, You know, good young men shot them, just shot them up. And so having to arrest them, having to put them in a room, having to sit down and look at them and having to interrogate them and have to listen to their whimpers having to all that kind of stuff really really got to me after a while and while I used to walk through those jail cells it was very rare and I know it might seem okay that okay yeah seriously like you know there had to be in somebody but it was very I I'd never ever came across somebody and I came across thousands of them I'd never ever came across somebody where I had felt like there was the, what you're saying there There was most of them, Nick, were all criminal. You know when you see see somebody and you say, that guy is bad news, like he's a criminal or he's the junkie kind or he's just an evil kind of a person, you know, dirty in their hygiene. The the men who were dying for the cause, for the revolution, were some of the best men I've ever, ever met in my entire life. And these were men that were dying at the hands of these mercenaries and criminals. You have to understand, by the way, Gaddafi, before we had entered the capital, emptied out all the prisons and gave them all weapons and told them to run wild and pillage. He did that on purpose, like. I don't connect or have any kind of a connection with a man who puts one man in front of the will of his own people. I can't understand it, no matter what he sings and dances. So I'll never have that kind of, like, a... An understanding where I'd be like, oh, I can see where they were coming from, or I could see, yeah, I can understand they were brainwashed. It's funny because somebody was saying to me there recently, okay, but you can't just paint the revolutionaries in a good brush and then that's it. And I said, okay, yeah, we had some bad uh, apples. You know, there's bad apples everywhere. But it'll never take away from the purity of the cause, what it was all about. will never be tainted by the actions of one or two or three or four
1: I, I i'm curious you're shooting at people you're like you're doing these things that in any other context outside of war are generally considered very bad how do you reconcile that like how do you continue being a good person when you're doing these things that in in any other context would be considered bad yeah well, to be honest with you nick
0: um I, I don't I don't see it even outside the context of war as far as I'm concerned outside the context of revolution and I will always differentiate revolution from conventional war and you could say how why it's the same bullets is the same guns it's the same everything else there's a reason why I sleep at night every night with no remorse whatsoever I'm not depressed and I'm not feeling low on myself and down on myself why I don't have to deal with any of the PTSDs and I don't have to deal with all the other letters and it's simply because there was never a time I went into a town that we had just liberated where I'd seen women and children's remains scattered all over the ground from the jets that had fired uh, down on the uh, on the city before we had made our entry for it to be later on to be discovered in hindsight that it was all for a bogus reason and there was no real WMD and there was oil deals and there was this and there was that, I never had that. I went over to protect the people from a monster. Yes, I did fire a gun, I did fire missiles, I did fire RPGs, I, I targeted uh, buildings, with, I gave NATO uh, locations for them to, to bomb certain positions that could have taken out a load of men, but there was no collateral damage. Yes, there was resolve in what we we were determined, but it was very calculated. I became a sniper simply for the reason that I wanted to make sure that I was on target with every bullet that I shot. Like, if I had killed civilians, I probably wouldn't be able to sleep at night. And I very nearly did once or twice. I, I went into a building, I was spraying all these buildings, and one of the buildings, I just, I don't know why, what happened, I didn't spray in through this white sheet that was covering the doorway and when I pulled away the sheet back there was this old man that was just lying there that couldn't get away from the war and he was stuck there and he had nothing to do with it. And I remember saying to myself afterwards it's like a blessing that I didn't shoot in through that door otherwise he would have been dead and I would have been in a different place mentally.
1: What kind of interactions do you have with people back in Ireland now when they when they find out? Because I know generally the Western bombing campaign was very unpopular there. Do people ever give you shit?
0: Um, I get mixed reactions over here, of course. You get all kinds. I've had heated rows. I've had Republicans, like IRA kind of style, Republicans who would be like, oh, Gaddafi was a good man. Because of the whole supplying arms to the IRA, I'd say that's not a sufficient enough reason for you to support a man who would massacre tens of thousands of people. Once there was an old man, and he was staunch Republican, probably, you know, with IRA ties. Somebody had said to him, you know, Jimmy, Sam's just back here from Libya. Like, he was one of the lads that fought against Gaddafi, like. And his initial reaction was disgust, like. I was surprised because I think it was the first time that it happened that i had gotten that reaction from an Irish person. I was just so used to people saying, you know, what an amazing feat and what a great job that you have done. My family's roots here go way back and deep into the cause against British rule. What I did in Libya, I considered very similar to what the Irish did. He was saying to me things like, you were played, and the only reason why Gaddafi was taken out was because he was anti-imperialistic. Okay, you can think what you like about all that, but you have to say to yourself, why did the people rise against him? Like I told that old man, I told him, did you know about a massacre that happened in 1996 when he gunned down 1,300 men who were political prisoners? similar to what the men here in the maze would have been. Can you imagine if the British were to have come out and mowed down and shot down 1,300 men? What kind of a massacre would you call that? And of course, with the drink involved and stuff, it was probably going in one ear and out the other. I had to try and transition back to normal life. But the thing is, it's there, and it'll always be there in my memories. I do sit down sometimes behind the desk and, you know, I just like a little giggle to myself and I'm saying, wow, it's, it's kind of like surreal now, thinking back.
1: How are things going with work? I know you said you were like starting to do insurance and stuff, right?
0: Yeah, I did. Yeah, I started in uh, Allianz Worldwide Healthcare. So it turns out you guys over in America are the most expensive in the world because I am never going over there to break an arm or anything like that. By God, looking at people's invoices. How do people survive over there, man? Craziness, man.
1: That's it for Love & Radio. Hussein Najjar's book is called Soldier for a Summer. You can find a link for it on our website. Love & Radio was produced by Brendan Baker, Kira O'Connor, and myself. We are a founding member of Radiotopia. Radiotopia's founding sponsors are the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork. Finally, a lot of you have been emailing me asking for a Love Radio t-shirt. Well, they're finally here, they're designed by my talented friend, Joe Deary. If you get one, and someone recognizes it, they're basically guaranteed to think you're a cool person. So get yours at loveandradio.org store. Thanks for listening.